Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. In this talk, I'll discuss the idea of image or likeness and develop then a Lacanian notion, a Zizekian notion, and plug it in then too. What I think is happening, not simply in biblical idolatry, but in the religion per se, in human religion, in the human psyche, but also then in culture. In other words, I think that we can trace the striving that we find in humankind to the image and its loss. And so in the beginning in Scripture, there is an image that is ours. You know, it begins with God, let us create in our image. And so the implication of that image is that it's a participation in the likeness of God, the original image. That is that if you separate out God from that image, the mirroring effect or the participation is going to be refracted in one way or another. And human likeness then will take on either it will turn in on itself in the way or it will fail to do what it was meant to do, and that is to participate in the image of God. So the very notion of self-image means that the self relates to itself. That is, that we feel this in human consciousness, in the very idea that we can, uh, it's, it's a kind of infinite regress, that there is a, a capacity for repetition in the self, in the self-relationship. So this capacity for reflexivity, for reflection is inherent to self-consciousness. But of course, this is originally a capacity that's found in God alone, and this we share with him. But in God, this reflexivity is not an empty category, and that's the danger here, is that in human beings, the category in some way will just be a shadowing forth. And that's the word here, a shadowing forth of God or a shadowing forth of nothing. And here we're thinking of the idol because it is precisely the word selim that is used in biblical idolatry, a shadowing forth. And it can mean the imaging in Genesis, but most often it's found in the idol. It comes from a root that means to carve out or cut out. And it's the word of of hewing out an idol. It's used in Exodus when Moses is carving out the stone, he's hewing out the stone tablets. And so in idolatry, we almost get a a picture then of the, the parts that were probably involved and are still involved in what the human image amounts to. And there's a kind of threefold sense that we see taken apart or there's an alienation that in fact makes it almost easier to understand in idolatry. And that is that the idol becomes the image. That is, it's the tzilum. There is a disconnectedness from God, but understand the image is also disconnected from self. And so what role for man? Well, man then actually has become the originator of the gaze, of the perspective. There's a loss of the original perspective in which man understood who he was through the eyes of God. That is, that there was a relationship. But in idolatry, the divine perspective is blocked and will be 
introduced into the idolater scene, you know, not as a unifying subjectivity, but especially when the prophets come onto the scene, that introducing God back into the picture uh, will reduce will, that idolatry is exposed for what it truly is, and that is that the image is, is uh, on an, a kind of objective gaze on a thing, on what Paul will say, well, the idol is actually nothing at all, and that's what's being circulated, that it is a circulation of emptiness and a loss of meaning. So if we apply this, you know, that we can apply this throughout in, in human culture, there is the idea that we create meaning or that we generate meaning. But in fact, it's a, it's a construct in which nothing or absence uh, circulate or death itself circulates. And so violence is going to be implicit in the failure or loss of the image. Uh, we, we'll come back to this, but of course, human sacrifice, but just the frustration of the attainment uh, is part of the uh, genealogy of violence. So the idolatrous image reverses the original image, but in the reversal and alienation, I think it brings out the components of the divine image, what role it played, it's clarified. Um, there is a complete separation between the gaze and the object of the gaze, that is the idolatrous worship, there's an absolute separation. The way this is often pictured in the Old Testament is that the idol is pictured in terms of a phallic symbol, a male phallus, and the idolater is pictured as female or an adulteress, a female idolater lusting after the impossible male symbol of the idol. Of course, this is, if you know something about idolatry, this is not figurative. This is often literal. Uh, the phallic image is uh, behind a lot of uh, idolatrous images. And so the idolater makes himself the originator of the divine image, that he stands in place of God. The idol doesn't actually stand in place of God. In fact, the primary problem of the idolatry scene is that it multiplies desire, that it becomes exponential. And here, when we think of desire and even human sexuality, not in its physical nature so much, but as a displacement, you know, there's a, a kind of heightened desire in uh, the idol idolater is portrayed as a female camel or an ass in heat in Ezekiel. And what's actually being, you know, what's missing is uh, being itself. There's a grab for substance. Um, the, the, the life is absent, if we think in terms of, of Genesis. And so where the original image is one of male-female unity, and of course this is where, you know, in the New Testament, that that imagery is going to be restored. The idolatrous image is one of absolute male-female separation. And so that's the Bible will equate it, both in the Old Testament, with desire, a heightened desire. And there is no possibility for satisfaction so that the destructiveness that we see in Isaiah 57 and Jeremiah, human sacrifice, is connected then to this exponential desire. 
Paul is going to talk about idolatry. He's going to actually reverse the terms, and he's going to say that all desire, all sinful desire is idolatry. So that, in fact, idolatry stands as the primary modus of, of the, the, the religion, that the human failure is the, uh, the impetus behind the creation of, of the religion. And so uh, the, the idea here is uh, the image cannot, maybe we can't disconnect it from sexuality, but sexuality uh, is a kind of representation of something else as it occurs in idolatry. It's, it's connected, you know, to just life and death issues uh, that Paul will connect even sin, he says, in Romans 7, is desire. And, of course, there he's playing out the role of the law. So the, the same desire that he's going to connect to uh, the law is he, he talks about elsewhere as being connected to idolatry. Throughout all of this, you know, and this is there in both Genesis, it's there in Paul's depiction in Romans 7, that we've moved into the realm of looking, in, into the, the looking and not being looked at. And it's a, a one-way gaze. And when the uh, divine gaze exposes the idolater, the Jeremiah says it's a kind of bearing of nakedness. Ezekiel depicts it as an exposure of a prostitution, that the covers are thrown back, uh, that it's subject to exposure before God. So it's like the idolater doesn't see himself until he sees himself through the eyes of God once again. And so what the prophets interdict into the system is another gaze, a looking the idolater is trying to block, or in fact, the whole idolater scene blocks out God, and that's the primary point of idolatry. Uh, I don't think that idolatry is, uh, in fact, you attain anything. The idol uh, in a good Hindu or, or a Buddhist, uh, the idol is simply playing a, a role. It, it can, it sometimes can be a bit ambiguous, the role of the idol, but the idol seems to be representation of something that ultimately cannot be attained any more than we can attain through the eyes that we can, you know, uh, do with the eyes what we would do with our other senses. So the idolater, by assuming the subject position before the object of the idol, is left unaware again and again of her own objective exposure in the eyes of God. So think here of the ignorance that is raised up, that they do not know what they are doing. There's a kind of lie. And of course, there is a, a purposeful mode in this lie that something is being blocked out. It certainly has to do with God, but it also has to do with the, the, the true image of self. And so the watcher that is made aware he is being watched. You know, it's like the voyeur caught at the keyhole. He's thrown into the object position in his own sight. He suddenly sees himself through the eyes of another. And so it's just the name, Colossians 3.5 says it's just another name for desire or greed. Uh, it's, uh, Ezekiel depicts it as a kind of impossible object. 
it's portrayed like the lust of a pornographer, that uh, it is an intensified desire in Isaiah 57. And this then gives rise to uh, the ultimate in human evil and child sacrifice. Uh, and of course, what we're describing here is not anything personal, that there is a depersonalization, there's an alienation. It's not, there's even a refusal of relationship. But the separation it marks, it's both inter and intral, that is, the interpersonal, that is that the same alienation is occurring uh, within terms of social relationship, but in terms to the relationship to the self. And so in terms of the original image in which there was no gap in perspective and image and thus no female male gap, we could say that this space is a false space creating the false foundation for idolatrous representations. That is what's ultimately being represented uh, is, is this absence, is this alienation. And this then gets at myth mythology that which directly counters the spectral self-relation of the imaginary or the fleshly, you know, the word here is ego, ego, uh, that we might think of in human psychoanalysis, that uh, the picture in a Lacanian understanding is that we make ourselves an object, we view ourselves uh, like a tselum, literally, and so the word is exactly the same word that we've become, not, not in the way that I think we often think of this, but we're describing a kind of frustrated self-relationship. The, the res resolution to this uh, is then to turn from the spectral to the auditory, and this is the picture of Christian hope, that we turn to that which falls outside the spectral relation, outside of the bodily image, if you're thinking in Freudian terms, that uh, the ego is the bodily ego, or it's the image in the mirror. Uh, in a sense, that this isn't mystical because the way that you have relationship is not through your eyes, but it's through speech. One of the interesting things that you get in both psychoanalysis and in idolatry that very often the, the idol, idol, idolatry scene is pictured as a kind of dullness, a kind of inanimateness in Jeremiah 10, Isaiah 44. Um, it's almost that the, this absence is a, a, an explanation of human boredom. That, uh, on the other hand, God's image is not an object of sight like the ego, and so achieving his likeness or achieving truth of any kind is a dynamic process. Paul will talk about this in terms of walking as he did, as setting the mind on the things of the spirit of a kind of active submission and patience. And so we might describe this as drama or narrative, that is, we enter into a story. And the story here is very different uh, than religious myth, which is a story that doesn't allow for continuous participation. What's imagined is that there will be conformity to Christ. Now, if you think of it in purely psychoanalytic terms, you can picture the superego ego split 
or the law of the mind, the law of the body is functioning very much like the uh, idol and the idolater f function. That is, that you can't attain the one through the other. Uh, in fact, the superego is a different register in Freudian psychoanalysis or Lacanian psychoanalysis. Uh, that where the ego is dependent upon the visual, the superego is dependent upon the law, upon uh, language, upon any kind of authority figure. Um, so the shift then to being conformed, I, and strangely enough, we often think of the image of Christ in exactly the wrong way as a kind of visual image. But of course, the point in the, the New Testament in Romans 8 is that this is not an image that we obtain by sight, but we obtain through the ears. The word of Christ comes to us, and the spirit of Christ indwells us. That there's a, uh, The picture is that it uh, is through the spirit that the body is resurrected. And so where desire arises through lack, maybe a lack of self, lack of being, lack of life, uh, the ground of hope is in Life is life in the spirit, which has as its goal conformity to the image of Christ. Maybe we could, you know, put all sorts of discourses in this understanding that rationalism or Platonism is very often dependent upon the static realm, you know, the divine truths or the forms, the static dependence uh, on uh, eternal truths of reason. Uh, it is uh, over and against the dynamics of change uh, in history, in uh, the verbal, in, in human communion or communion between God and human beings that is the fulfillment, a dynamic fulfillment of promise, which is inherently historical. Uh, it's in and through the present moment. In Jürgen Moltmann's description, it becomes possible to experience the dynamic of change of history through hope. This is his big book on hope, not as a threat to the static reality. And it's interesting he talks this way, and he's not naive of Freudian psychoanalysis. I think that he understands that the superego, ego relationship is a threatening relationship. It's a, in some way, uh, there is an inherent angst in that relationship. But this understanding is that we escape to uh, 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 that dynamic, or that actually it's a, a kind of failed dynamic that's going nowhere, and that's what hope is doing. There's a teleology to hope in which future, present, and past are all brought together. There is the sense that the spectral is always caught up in something that cannot uh, endure time. You know, think of the difference between listening to the uh, a speech or radio and seeing a picture, that the picture freezes things. Uh, but listening is always a dynamic process. And so transcendence and imminence uh, go together in a kind of... Uh, dynamic in which language and meaning and imagination come together in hope. And this is the way to gain meaning from an ever-changing world. It's to have, you know, a beginning and an end. This is Christ as the Alpha and Omega. And it's only persons who can 
bind time together into meaningful un units and as a meaningful whole. As Maltman describes it, the law of sin and death is an imminent law, and for this reason, it can't contains no hope. It, you know, this is a Charles Taylor picture of secularism, that it's always an imminent frame, that we can't get out of that imminent frame, or we presume that imminent frame is all there, at, all there is, or we might imagine that there are absolutes to be had in the imminent frame. But the law of the life and the spirit, uh, it brings a transcendence into time. Imminent and transcendent come together. And thus we can think of hope as giving us access to a transcendent hope that escapes this futility. As James Dunn puts it, Paul deliberately sets the whole process of cosmic and human history between the two poles, pre-temporal purpose and final glorification as the completion of that purpose. And so hope has as its center a certainty based on the shared perspective provided in the work of Christ in which God's will, you know, this is the sense of predestination, is in control of all. Uh, not in the sense of some kind of Calvinistic sense that God stands outside, but his purpose to bring his creation and creatures to their full intended potential is undefeatable. And so the reason grounded in the visual image, I think it prevents the ego, the ego prevents entry into life, the ego, the thinking thing, you know, of Descartes' cogito, I think, therefore I am. And it is in fact unobtainable. That's the Lacanian interpretation of the cogito, I think, you know, uh, and you imagine that the thing that thinks is in some way graspable, but this is Kant's point. The thinking thing is an empty category. It's static. It's not subject to growth and change. It's an object fixed as part of a formal structure. And so this Lacan says, I am nothing of what happens to me because the I is in fact unapproachable. It's an empty category. It's in the place of the idol. Everything that one is lies within the static object relation to the self. And so there's this agonistic self relation to the I, to the self as an obstacle. It's an obstacle to life. It is a kind of living death. And so Christians do not believe in the eternal truth or truths of reason that can be known apart from the existence of history of the people of Israel, of the history of Christ, of the church. We know that the witness that we are called to is such exactly that we are, uh, that we witnessed is uh, to, is it's unavailable apart from a community of people. That is, that just as Christ is incarnate and historical, the church is incarnate and his, his historical, that the dynamic, the truth, the epistemology is dependent upon the body of Christ in its ever-present you know, sense. And so such a witness takes the form, obviously, of nonviolence, that we believe that God who makes such a witness necessary is a God who would not be known. He's only known through peace, through community, through love. Um, that the violence that arises 
uh, in idolatrous religion, in failed humanity, is by its very nature, the, the et- etymology of that, the, the genealogy of it, the genealogy of evil is, direct, is, is uh, addressed at its source. And so, as Stanley Harrows has put it, the church is where the stories of Israel and Jesus are told, they're enacted, they're heard. And it is our conviction that as a Christian people, there is literally nothing more important we can do. But the telling of that story requires that we become a particular kind of people. We and the world are to hear this story truthfully. And so the church must never cease being a community of peace and truth. These, to, to be violent is not to have heard this word. It is inherently untrue. So there, this is the participation in the drama of doctrine in James McClendon's picture. The story you're living out is the story related in the text. That's what's so often missing in uh, our understanding of religion. We often think of religion as a kind of sui generis other. But a historical religion, or one that takes into account the historical, as in the incarnation, uh, history is real. History matters exactly because God, in God's mysterious way, the past then is present now, then is now. So the church of the New Testament is the church now. Time is not abolished, but in a sense, it is. neither does it bind us. We're trans, we transcend time. And the church that reclaims its past stands today before the great final judge as well. This is that, then is now, in James McClendon's words. And so there's this participation and drama. So the stories are not mere pedagogical devices. They epitomize a mode, a different mode of rationality. They're not Stories are not substitute or deficient explanations. You know, we can replace these with doctrine. No, that the narratives are necessary. That's the place that we participate. That's the dynamic that we're living out. And so uh, this, this gets at the dynamic understanding, not simply of the New Testament, but what a human being is. The command to witness is not based on the assumption that we are in possession you know, of some truth outside of history, a universal truth. Uh, uh, if such a truth existed, uh, we, we wouldn't have to witness to it. People could just get there philosophically. Uh, they could get there through a kind of analytic reason. Rather, the command to be a witness is based upon the presupposition that we only come to the truth through the process of being confronted historically by the truth and joining ourselves to the truth. And this brings us, you know, alienation of the idol, uh, the static community, the stasis of reason. Uh, In a sense, this is what Ludwig Wittgenstein uh, was up against, that he, he tells us that words have meaning only in the stream of life. Then we have one more reason why any invitation to Christian belief must be an invitation to community, to story. 
and why any exploration of ideas must also be an invitation to life in the church and to think of the corporate or familiar nature of righteousness. This is the point. We've gotten righteousness in a theoretical, static, legal sense, but it refers to a familial relationship. Being made right is not something we have as an individual on our own, independently of anyone else. It's something one has precisely in our relationship as social beings. It's a relationship with God, but it's a relationship with other people. Relations are made right, and they're made right then in the story of Christ. And so God's covenant faithfulness to his people is the fulfillment of his righteousness. And in turn, the faithfulness of his children to this relationship is their righteousness. And so righteousness is being brought into right relationship, overcoming alienation, idolatrous alienation, the alienation of desire, of a futile desire, of a hostility. You know, this is the way Paul depicts it, that there is an inherent hostility toward God. Uh, and this being made right is resolves this alienating conflict with God, with others, and with the self. And so it's alienation versus relationship. We're called to relationship and its accomplishment uh, is, uh, that's the sense, you know, that the, the covenant relationship is the foundation. It's the certainty of being a child of God and being able to depend, depend on his love. And this stands in contrast then to the oppressive demands of the law and this uh, uh, maybe a kind of certainty, the certainty of the idol, the certainty of a kind of rational proof or the certainty of rationalism without appeal to anything beyond it. Uh, there is a, a kind of apologetic understanding of Christianity, but I think there's uh, that that is built upon a kind of modernist understanding of reason. Paul says, you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And this then pictures hope over and against this hopelessness or this futility. So that's the resolution to the futility of the fall. It's directly countered in an ontology of hope in which futility is accounted for, it's uh, surpassed, and we allow it's allowed by God. Uh, you know, it, it's there in Romans 8, for the creation was subject, subjected to this futility, not of its own choice, but through the choice of the one who subjected it in hope. It's interesting. It's God's hope. The hope is not simply human hope, but it's God's that we participate in. Uh, and this accounts then for the, the allowance maybe for uh, the futility that we experience and the, the escape then from uh, a spectral sight reason, dependence on the law, dependence on a kind uh, of power. Uh, and so narrative is over and against that sort of understanding, over and against that coin, uh, spectral, visional uh, kind of understanding of the world. So vision devoid of worldview makes no more sense than law 
devoid of promise and grace. And so to end this, think here of the child that first apprehends its image through a kind of imaginary capacity arising simultaneously with entry into the symbol symbolism of language. And this is the way that Paul pictures it. It's the way that Lacan pictures it, that I did not know the, what it was to desire until the law said, thou shalt not desire. And so in Paul's image, but this is, of course, Lacanian image, I or ego encounters the law, and the two, the ego and the law, the symbolic, arise together. This is the way that we think children actually learn to say and recognize themselves, their own name, and their own visual image. In Romans 7, then there is that picture, and then in Romans 8, there's an alternative image. And we have the picture in Ephesians and Corinthians and Romans of a real union. That is, that if disunion, alienation is definitive of people, of religion, of culture, then the church or the culture of Christ or uh, the, the family of God or the marriage relationship all depict a kind of union that overcomes alienation. It defeats the desire of idolatry. It overcomes human fear and angst. All of this, you might say, is a kind of orientation to death, undone in the resurrection of Christ. And so in this sense, we might talk about the resurrection as defeating the need for idolatrous religion. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.